Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. We started off that set with the phenomenal Nina Simone doing Taking Care of Business, and you just heard our guest today, Allison Moyer, doing her rocking song, Going Down, to which my cousins and I spent many a Saturday night dancing. Allison Moyer is a singer-songwriter who originally hails from Alabama, but now lives in Nashville. She has been nominated for Academy Award, uh, Grammy Award, Americana Music Association Awards, and many others. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the New School. Her work has been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, American Songwriter, many other places. She received the Hall Waters Prize for Excellence in Southern Writing in 2020. Her first book, Blood, came out in 2019 and received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Booklist. Her brand new book is called I Dream He Talks to Me and was recently featured in the New York Times with a review that called it, quote, a heartfelt book and one that provides a resounding tribute to her son's powerful impact on her life. I have loved Alice Moyer's work ever since her 1998 debut when I felt her songs of longing were reading my mind as someone in his late 20s, and I have loved every one of her albums since. Now I can add both of her books to that love fest. She's here today to talk to us about I Dream He Talks to Me. Thanks so much for being with us, Allison. Thank you for having me, Silas. It's great to be with you. Well, as you know, I was deeply moved by I Dream He Talks to Me. And on one hand, I want to say to you that the book is so powerful because it speaks to anyone who has ever taken care of someone else. It's about a universal experience. But then I feel like that is a bit reductive because you are in a different kind of parenting situation. So do you have mixed feelings when someone says any parent can relate to this? No, I don't. And in fact, um, that is my hope, ultimately, is that anyone who reads the book takes away the message of, um, first of all, hope in whatever situation there is, they're in, and everybody's in some kind of situation. And then just the message of love and unconditional love and love that does not lean on similarity. You know, Mm -hmm. I think what I have found in being a mama to my son, John Henry, who was diagnosed with uh, level three autism at age just before he turned two. What I've learned through that journey, well, I've learned more than I've ever learned through any other experience, that's for sure. But I've learned more about love. love. I've learned more about how powerful love really is, the links to which you will go for someone you love, and also the things that keep hope alive. You know, um, I've just been expanded so much through being his mama. And um, my hope is that, sure, if someone is in a parenting situation or a caregiving situation for someone who has a disability, yes, this book is definitely um, for them. But it is also for everyone in that we all love and love deeply in our own ways. And the parenting thing, you know, anyone who's done it 
knows that right. children will just flat out kill you. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's, you know, there's something in there and, and there are moments that I relate in the book that, that everyone will, will get, you know? Yes. Well, the first thing you do in the book is acknowledge that in telling the story, you have to tell John Henry's story. So in it, you write, quote, I wasn't sure how you would feel about me telling people these things about us. So I wrote every word here, imagining you were reading each one over my shoulder, end quote. That's such a powerful opening because it's right at the heart of memoir writing, how our own stories ultimately revealed things about others. And of course, there are other people in the book besides you and your son. So tell me about grappling with the privacy of others in the revelations of a memoir. Mm-hmm. It's a really important question. And I think as a memoirist, I have to think about it a lot. You know, I, uh, my first book, Blood, was a memoir too. Um, but I didn't have to worry so much about how the subjects were going to um, react to what I had written. My, you know, the, that story is the story of my childhood, and my parents are both gone. I did uh, give the book to my sister to read before I even turned it in mm-hmm. to my publisher because I wanted to make sure she was okay with it. In this case, John Henry cannot tell me whether or not he approves. So because of that, and first of all, I will say, you know, there are plenty of arguments out there and um, about, you know, the, the, what are the ethics about writing about your children? Mm-hmm. Some people think that it's off limits. You should never do it. Some people don't see it that way. I think in this case, it's tricky because I am first and foremost an artist. And I'm an artist who deals with the subject matter of my life. And this was what was in front of me. And as an artist, I do the work that is in front of me. It would um, would have been hard for me to go figure out something else to write about when this is what my, my day in, day out is. And I'm a memoirist, you know. I've never written nonfiction. I, I mean, I've never written fiction. I hope to... Um, to dip a toe into that at some point. But so far, I, I've had so much material that I didn't have to make up. I, it would have felt unnatural to me to try to push it aside because for whatever reason, I am compelled to deal with these stories of my family. I'm admittedly a bit obsessive about the dynamics of the nuclear family. I like investigating it. I like looking under all of those rocks. I like asking questions. I like seeing what all of it adds up to for an individual. So, you know, I had to tussle with all that. That's still my right to make my art does not supersede my son's right to privacy. Mm-hmm. I do know that. Mm-hmm. So the bargain that I had to strike with myself and what I hope he will, I hope he already understands because I don't just assume that John Henry doesn't know this has happened. Um, I have shown him the book. I've talked to him about the book. He's looked at the cover. He knows that's him. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a a rendering composite painting of him, but I think he totally gets what it is. You know, most children are going to be mad at their parents about something. (laughs) Right. Um, 
so, you know, I just will put it like this. My editor and I went through it and went through it and went through it and went through it. And we did everything we could to make sure we were passing muster with ourselves about making sure there wasn't anything in the book that would embarrass John Henry or make him feel bad or, you know, and I also um, asked his father to read it. So, you know, way ahead of time so that he could make sure there wasn't anything that he objected to, because as John Henry's parents, we, of course, you know, have to do our best to not think for him and not be him, but imagine what he might want. So I did everything I could do, you know. Yeah, well, Um, certainly nothing. I'm sure there are people out there who still are going to take exception. But, you know, you can't please everybody. Well, I think they would... I, I, there's absolutely nothing exploitive in the book um, about him, and it's just a, like the New York Times review said. It's just a great tribute to him and all of his complexity, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. There's a chapter in the book that I have thought about many times, especially when I've been out in public since reading the book, and it's called "When You Stare." So, can you summarize what you were doing in that chapter? Well, you know. Um, I until recently lived in New York City with John Henry, and we lived in this. You know, you're, when you live in New York City, you you spend a lot of time out in public. I think uh, disproportionately more than you would spend out in public if you live somewhere else where you've got your own yard, and you know, there's so many public spaces in New York City that you have to go to, like public swimming pool, or you know, and. In this case, we lived in a in a building that had a swimming pool in the basement. I moved into the building on purpose because of that swimming pool, because John Henry likes to swim so much. Yeah. Having said that, it wasn't a private pool. It was something that all the residents could go to. Um, and you're always, you're either on the subway or you're um, in a public park, whatever it is. And John Henry um, will sometimes be very vocal. He has a speech disability, so he doesn't say words in English like you and I do, um, or at least not that I have yet been able to understand. I think that sometimes he does say things and, and they just they don't come out clearly and I miss them. Or he will, you know, if he becomes overstimulated, he might have a meltdown or he might, you know, there's just no telling what can happen. Wow. When a person has autism and they have sensory processing difficulties, we don't necessarily know what's going to set them off. So taking John Henry into certain environments can be surprising because he may have a reaction to, I don't know, the flickering fluorescent light or someone's perking or he just may not like something. And his way of expressing that is to sometimes have, you know, big outsized behaviors. And I do realize that a lot of people are not used to seeing that. What I would, was trying to get across in this piece called When You Stare is, you know, first of all, it isn't polite to stare. I was taught that. My mama taught me that. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what's going on, you don't stare. Right. Um, and, you know, this piece is about uh, this sort of incredulous reaction from certain people when they witness a meltdown or a vocalization or whatever it is. They just sort of get this horrible look on their face, and they just can't seem to take their eyes off of it. So, um And that is is difficult, you know, 
for anyone to feel like they're the um, subject of extreme scrutiny, but also incredibly hard for a mama to um, not have a, a big reaction to you know, I just want to yeah. say, why are you staring and why do you think that helps? And just if you don't have something nice to say or an offer of help, just keep moving. Right. You know, I picked out a passage from this piece. If you want me to I do. Read I'd it. love to hear it, yes. Okay. This is about well, just right in about the, the third paragraph of the book. I mean of the of this piece. Most days I think I'd like for my son to have a more typical experience. Some features of autism are decidedly not desirable. But who am I to say? What if he's having the time of his life? What if the things that bother the rest of us don't bother him so much? What if he's experiencing a fantasia phantasmagoria in his mind, and we just disturb it with our demands on him to become more like we are? I remember saying to someone when he was newly diagnosed that I'd love for him to be able to sit and turn a block between his hands all day, every day, because that seemed to be what made him feel good. But that, unfortunately, this was not a world of block turners, and I was going to have to do my best to get him out of block turner world. We've made some strides there. At the time I said that, I thought we'd have seen more by now. But John Henry is a block turner. He may reach a point where he doesn't need to turn the block so much, but just as we all have our things, he will always have his. Yes, you certainly have your things. Maybe your constant throat clearing strikes me as odd, your constant nose wiping, repulsive. Maybe your verbal tics and slim-footedness make me want to cross to the other side of the street but I wouldn't want to make you feel self-conscious or uncomfortable. I want to stare back at you when you stare at him. I want to imitate your face with my face and show you how ridiculous and awful you look, eyes bulging, jaw slapped with incredulity. But I don't, not usually, not unless I'm in a particularly perturbed mood and I think I desire some sort of confrontation, which I know you would refuse. If I said or did something to acknowledge your lack of, dra- of graciousness, you'd probably act surprised and scurry away from us thinking I was in the wrong. But I don't usually stare back unless I've got a lot of starch in my britches that day, not only because I want to keep my son focused on being his most liberated self and how I don't think he's strange. Of course I want to do that, but also because I know it's not polite. Clearly someone forgot to tell you that, or maybe you were told and you just forgot. I've never known more than I know now that most people are completely thrown by things that are out of their ordinary. Just as I am sometimes surprised by children who speak, most folks are surprised by the fact that mine does not, yet, communicate clearly with words, or that he still needs to be reminded to go to the bathroom sometimes or to eat with a spoon, or he occasionally prefers to eat with his hands instead of the proper utensil if it's more efficient for him. That he doesn't play video games on his iPad and instead just watches movies and listens to music and he, do- he doesn't care to play soccer and instead wants to swim all day every day because his body feels free and right in the water. You appear intrigued by his differences. I do wonder, though, why you need to stare. Are you horrified by autism? Do you know that's what you're seeing and not a spoiled child who runs roughshod over his mother? He may very well be spoiled. I'd admittedly try to lasso the moon for him if I thought it would make him happy, but that's not what's happening here. What you're seeing is a boy living inside his own world and a mama who can't find the key to let herself in or him out or even the instructions that might help him do either himself. 
imagine how it feels for us to be struggling to get through a moment and then add the insult of thinking you're probably thinking we're doing a bad job and we're disturbing you. I love that. And I love later on, it goes on to your advice at the end to people is to instead of staring to to be kind, quote, please try to understand something that is, yes, ununderstandable to you. And you encourage people to smile at you and other parents in your situations. It reminds me of how we must all be constantly reminding ourselves to be more empathetic in a world that seems to always be trying to erase that from us. And I think the thing that comes through in both of your books so beautifully is empathy. Why do you think that's such a major theme of your writing? Mm. Well, I just think it's where I've arrived. I was lucky enough to be asked to be an instructor at uh, Rodney Crowell's songwriting camp this past summer. Mm. And we were... It was the first night of the camp, and all the instructors were sitting up on the stage and were playing for the students. And it was Rodney and Beth Nelson Chapman and Mike Reed and John Jorgensen was there and um, uh, Peter Asher and just and me. You know, there I was, and um, I was trying to figure out what I could say that would make them understand why I was there. Like, what is it, what is it about me hmm. that would make me a good candidate for being, for listening to other people's songs and, and offering any sort of advice about them? And what I said was, and this sort of just came tumbling out of me, I said, you know, because uh, Rodney had asked me also to talk about my two books as well as my, my 10 albums I've recorded, you know. Um, so I've I've done work as a songwriter and I've done work as a as a nonfiction writer. But what I figured out about all of it is this, that it's all memoir. It's all work in memoir, and I've been doing it for a long time. And so I was just talking about that, and I said, you know, I can sit here as a forty nine year old woman and tell you that I come to you as a completely destroyed person. And I think what that means is, is experience and extreme experience just sort of slays you. You know, my first book is about my childhood. Anyone who doesn't know, I mean, I can't imagine anyone who knows my name who doesn't know this about me at this point, but my parents died when I was 14 in a murder-suicide. And, and so Blood, the first memoir, is really about that, but it's, it's about not only their deaths, but our lives before they died. And also there's a present day section that sort of explores what all of those experiences add up to. And the idea of inheritance is very intriguing to me. And I'm always sort of investigating that, you know, if, if A plus B equals C, then what is in A and B? And if, you know, how did I get to C? So I just feel compelled to investigate all of those experiences. And because I, I have done that, I have um, sort of figured out that it is, that art making period is about empathy. Mm -hmm. It's about finding empathy. It's about sharing common experience. And to do that honestly, you've got to come from a place of empathy. 
I don't think art is ever successful when it has its finger pointed mm-hmm. anywhere except at the person making it. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of come from that angle, knowing that I am an imperfect being and knowing that everybody else too, is too, and we're all just doing the, the best that we can do. Yes. And even in the case of, you know, I've had people say to me, I can't believe you can be so forgiving toward your father. Mm-hmm. And what I know about that is, yes, I think sometimes it's, it's hard for even me to believe that I can picture my father and see him through the eyes of love and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But what I also know is no one should be judged on the worst thing that they ever did mm-hmm. or the best thing that they ever did. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't reduce a person to their their worst moment. And so one of the things I tried to do in that book was just be really honest about him. And the truth is, is um, there were things about him that were incredible. Mm -hmm. I think it's just trying to stay open and allow, allow the possibility that circumstances can be a lot of different things at the same time. You're listening to on the porch here on WUKY 91.3 FM this is Silas House, and we're talking to singer, songwriter, memoirist Alice Moyer about her new book, I Dream He Talks to Me. Well, Allison, the other thing I always say about this book is that I learned so much about autism while reading it. Was that one of your goals with the book, to educate people about this, or, or is, is yes. that just necessary? Yes, oh. absolutely. Right. Yes, like, and, and, and in, a, in a more informal way, because I'll tell you what, uh, John Henry was diagnosed in 2012. In March of 2012, he was almost two. Um, my reaction was what I I know and also suspect a lot of parents' reaction is, which is to jump into action, get all the books, do all the research, ask all the questions, do all the stuff, because we, we get real busy real fast trying to fix it. Um, we don't know. It takes us a while to figure out that it isn't something that even necessarily needs to be fixed. It's it's a difference that we have to figure out how to be with rather than to try to eradicate every day. It took me a long time to get there. Some people never get there. Um, some people grasp that immediately. But what I didn't have at that time was a book like this. I didn't, you know, I read a lot about what autism is. I didn't have a lot of resources that made me know what autism feels like mm-hmm. for either the person who's been diagnosed with it or the parents or caregivers that are helping with the journey. You know, I didn't, I've never laid my hands on a book that said, you know what, this is going to be insane. This is going to be crazy. This is going to be one of the craziest things that's ever happened to you. Quite possibly the craziest thing that's ever happened to you. It's going to be okay, and you'll figure out a way through it because there's love and grace and hope. And if you're trying your best to listen to your child, if you're looking deeper, if you're expanding your love and your patience and your hope, and you dig up the deepest, most sincere parts of yourself every day and try to, yes, keep looking for answers, but also hold that child in that moment as dear as they are, regardless of if they ever make any progression. 
whatsoever and you're just where you are for the rest of your life. You kind of have to learn how to do that. You hope for the best and you do all the things that are going to bolster that uh, trajectory, but you also have to hold what is at the same time. You made a companion album that went with blood. Um, so are you working on some new music to go along with that dream he talks to me? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I certainly have. But this project is, is very different from the album I did um, that came out with Blood. This music is based on melodies that mm. started with John Henry. Mm. So uh, John Henry does happen to be very musical. I don't think that's necessarily because of his autism. I think that's because of the family he was born into. Yeah. <laughs> um, Will you know who can say? But he um, loves to listen to music, and he listens to every kind of music. Um, but he makes up his own little tunes, and he's had some in the past two or three years that he, you know, that that recur. Like he, you know, he's been singing them for a couple, three years. So I've taken a few of those melodies, and I've written songs around them. And it's just the most joyous musical experience I've ever had. Wow. I, um, it hardly, ha- it, I don't think it has that much to do with me. It almost feels like I've channeled this music. I, um, you know, I was just writing with what I feel like he likes in my mind and, and how that converges together with his melodies and just how it feels to know him and to experience um, the world with him as my son and my my best, best friend and favorite person. Yeah. I think our first focus track will be released in January, and then the EP will come out on February 11th, so right before Valentine's Day. Well, to close us down, um, <laughs> uh, why don't you read us one more excerpt from I Dreamy Talks to me? And while you're finding that, I want to let everybody know that you are listening to WKY 91.3 FM. It's listener-supported radio. And you're fixing to hear a little excerpt from I Dream He Talks to Me by Elsa Moyer. Okay, thank you, Silas. I'm going to leave you with a a passage from the last piece in the book, which is called Terms of Surrender. And uh, this piece was actually inspired by the song Terms of Surrender by His Golden Messenger. So just a little something for, for your listeners if they want to go look at that song. Autism is just as much a part of my sign as his blue eyes and long fingers. What I want to surrender is always trying to change that, because what I see now, now that we are here, is that it isn't the work, but instead the relentless effort to eradicate autism that's exhausting. What I want to surrender is the constant pursuit of the idea that he might become less who he is and more someone else. Autism is here with us, here in him, and it isn't going anywhere. I might have said, even as recently as a few months ago, that if I had it my way, John Henry would be as typical as they come. I might even still say that some days now because the vision I have of him playing in hen creeks and streams, catching frogs and snakes and throwing dirt clods at his friends, overstaying his welcome at their houses and testing their parents' patience, spending too much time playing video games, and starting a rock band in the garage sounds easier than the life we have now. That vision isn't what we've got. We aren't having an ordinary experience. But what we are having is something more extraordinary than I dreamed. We get to see life from an unusual, remarkable angle. 
I get to know a kind of love and healing that I never could have known any other way. For me, that is a privilege, and I won't get the peace I so desire until I see and treat it as such. If you asked me today if I'd change my son, the answer would be no, not unless that's what he wanted. I want him exactly as he is, however that is. Acceptance is the deal we make when we want to stop fighting. Acceptance for me is allowing my son to be the version of himself that he is right now, because there is only right now. Choosing to see it that way is the only part of this over which I really have any power at all. I don't want my son's disability to tear us up. I have to love every bit of him in order to love him as he deserves. Acceptance of being here right now instead of looking ahead to the day when this will all be over. It isn't going to be over. Acceptance of being here instead of looking ahead to the day when I get my son back. I already have my son and in full. Acceptance of being here instead of looking ahead to the day when the thick terror of uncertainty is thinned to a more sustainable degree. Only I can control how scared I'm willing to be. Today is the day. Today can always be the day that all of this changes if I change the way I see it. Thank you. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Silas. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for joining us here on The Porch. Until next time, take good care of one another. Here's Allison Moyer with Mama Let the Wolf In. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On The Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, and we thank you for joining us.